I greet you in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. The odds are that more Americans serve the false God of money than serve the living Christ. The purpose of this message today is to help us beat those odds. We have three scriptural lessons, two brief and one longer, one from the Old Testament, two from the New. And if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. First from Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Secondly, from Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then from Luke 7, our primary reading of the morning, Luke 7, beginning with verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put any oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. 
Please be seated and let us, have, let us pray. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> In one of my former churches, there was a beautiful little eight-year-old girl named Joy. And she was very bright. And one day she said to her father, I wish you were as rich as Reverend Balknight. <laughs> and he, knowing approximately what my salary was, got a chuckle out of that one. And then he said, honey, what makes you think Reverend Balknight is so rich? She said, every Sunday it takes four men to bring all those tithes and offerings up to him. <laughs> well, then her father sat her down and explained where all those tithes and offerings go. And suddenly her vision of a wealthy preacher vanished. Now, none of, few of us, few of us think of ourselves as rich. But in comparison with the world, we really are. The experts say that if you could compress the world's population down to a village of 100, 65 would be unable to read, only two would be college educated, 40 out of the 100 would be suffering from malnutrition. 70 would be living in substandard housing. And 7 would control half of the money in the entire village. And most of us would be among those 7. Satan uses five primary weapons in his campaign to steal our souls. He never changes because they work. His five weapons, money, sex, addictive substances, power, and pride, never changes because they work. His most dangerous tool in America is that first one, the love of money. Why is that in America? Well, money is so identified in our culture with success and status that it is an enormously powerful weapon in Satan's hands. I think Jesus must have anticipated America because 15% of all of his statements in the four Gospels, 15% have to do with money and possessions. Scripture offers us clear guidelines for victory over love of money. And this morning I want to offer three biblical guidelines for handling finances in a faithful way. I want to defuse this powerful weapon that Satan has. First, God owns everything and we are his money managers. Long ago the psalmist gave us this essential truth in these words. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it and all who live in it. Now, most Americans do not agree with what I just said. And I can almost hear the skeptical American thinking to himself, come on, preacher, 
You tell me I don't own anything. Come on, I can show you the deeds. I've got them in my lockbox. I've got the deed to my house, my cars, my boat, a lot of stuff. And if you want to see them, I'll show you. Now, I don't want to be morbid, but I got to say to that person, you know, you're going to die at some point, and those deeds are not going with you. They'll go to someone else, and then that person will die. Go to someone else, that person will die. In the final analysis, all of those deeds, they will return to the Creator, God Almighty. Just imagine if I were to give $1,000 to my favorite stockbroker and ask him to invest it for me. Now, I would pay him a fee for his services, of course. But he would never presume that that was his money. He would be aware that he was holding it and investing it in trust for me. Well, similarly, all the stuff we have is on lease. Our loan from God Almighty, it's held in trust for him. And one day he's going to ask for an accounting how we used it. In effect, what God says to us is, look, I'm going to be very gracious with you. I'm going to loan you enough brains and health and energy and material resources to not only meet your needs, but a whole lot of your wants. And I'm even going to give you enough with which you can be very generous. It's my desire that you prosper, but you must never forget that you are using my assets. And one day, I'm going to call you to account for how you use my stuff. That's the first guideline. God owns everything. We are his money managers. Here's the second guideline for being faithful in finances. We can serve God or greed, but not both. The Bible does not say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. You know, money itself is morally neutral. It can do great good, great harm, depending on who controls it. Uh, every church sanctuary in America was built with money. But money is also the most seductive false god in America. And we are often captivated by money and the things it can buy. And greed is simply love of money. We live in a capitalistic country, and that's good because capitalism and free markets have lifted more people worldwide out of poverty than any other economic system in history. But capitalism contains within itself a huge temptation to worship money and the things it can buy. I heard the late great bishop Ernest Fitzgerald tell about a bad decision he made when he graduated from college. He said that he had long had his eye on this particular car, brand new car. He wanted it badly. He yearned for it. Oh, it was beauty. It was a beauty. I mean, it had four gears in the floor, uh, double barrel carburetors, chrome in all the right places. And he knew if he had it, he would be even more attractive to the ladies. Oh, he wanted this car badly. So 
When he graduated from college, he took his savings account and used that as a down payment and then got one of these extended payment plans. Bought the car. Then he went to show it to his father. His father looked it over and he asked some questions. He said, son, how many payments you got to make on this thing? Ernest told him. He said, uh, isn't it true that you've got three years of seminary coming up and you've got to be funded for those years? Yes, sir, he said. And is it true that you have not yet found a job by which you can earn money for those years? And Ernest replied sadly, yes, Dad, that's true too. And then with a quiet but perceptive wisdom, his father said, son, you don't own that car. That car owns you. And the same thing could be said of the person who has four or five credit cards and pays the minimum balance every month on each one. You don't own those cards. Those cards own you. It's so tempting in America to, to try to have double sovereignty. Can't I love God and love money too? Jesus said a resounding no to that dual sovereignty. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. You cannot love both God and money. Now, thankfully, over the coming weeks, more and more of us Americans are going to be getting that wonderful vaccine so that we can defeat this awful plague of COVID-19. But there's a disease out there that's more dangerous than the covid you see, COVID-19 and all other physical diseases can only hurt you in this life. But there's another disease, a spiritual one called greed, which can not only wreck your life in this world, but separate you from God for eternity. Now, thankfully, the Bible offers a very simple way by which we can virtually inoculate ourselves against the sin of greed. It's a beautiful, beautiful way. It's simply called tithing. It's the minimal amount that a Christian ought to give to God out of his resources. The first 10% of everything he earns ought to be given. That's called tithing. Tithing is not, the number one purpose of tithing is not to raise money for the church. The number one purpose of tithing is to grow Christian disciples. A secondary purpose is to protect us from the sin of greed. Here is a profound truth that I challenge you to consider, and you tell me if it's not true. It is virtually impossible to give 10% of your income to something or someone you do not love. Isn't that true? Oh, I've seen people give 1%, 2%, just out of duty or to make an impression on somebody, but not 10. No, no, it's too much. To give 10%, God has to have a sizable chunk of your heart for you to do that. And that's just the way God meant it to be. Be honest with yourself. Which has more influence in your life today? Is it God or money? That leads us to the third biblical guideline for faithful finances. When our hearts belong to Christ, 
We want to give extravagantly. And our scripture lesson from Luke's gospel is a wonderful example of this truth. According to the four gospels, Jesus complimented only three people. And two of them were women. And those two women were complimented because they gave extravagantly. Let me set the scene for this one from Luke 7. Jesus was about to enter Jerusalem for the last time. In less than a week, he would die on a cross for us. But first, he spent a couple of days in Bethany, which is a suburb just east of Jerusalem. A Pharisee named Simon invited Jesus to his house for dinner. And it was the custom in those days when a rabbi or famous teacher came to your house for dinner, you allowed the general public to assemble in the courtyard so they could listen to any wisdom or lessons from this uh, esteemed teacher. It was also the custom that uh, when you had a dinner party at your house to have a servant at the door to do two things for each guest, wash their feet and place a little bit of perfume on them. Now, that sounds strange to us. And if somebody invited you to their house and tried to wash your feet and, and dab you with a little perfume, you would be insulted. But remember how different the first century was. Everybody walked on dirty, dusty roads. Um, there was no indoor plumbing, no sewer system. Donkey, sheep, all kind of animals wandered all over. So a lot of the outside aroma was not pleasant. And so it was a real favor when you came to a dinner party for someone at the door to wash your feet and to put a drop or two of perfume on you. Um, it would certainly improve the ambience of the dinner party if this was done for you. The guests were at the dinner table uh, and... Uh, they were not seated as, as we would be. Uh, instead, it was the custom in those days uh, for the dinner table to be just about a foot off the floor. And the guest would recline on their left elbow, reach out with their right hand to get food and drink, and their feet would be extended away from the table. It's also interesting when we think about this dinner party to remember that those amenities that normally were accorded to guests were not given to Jesus by his host, Simon. Nothing was done for Jesus at the door. And then a strange woman crashed Simon's dinner party. And her very appearance testified against her. Because in Jewish society, no respectable woman would go out in public with unbound hair. And yet this woman, with her long unbound hair, stood out right away as a sinful woman. And she brought with her an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made out of pure nard now, nard was an aromatic oil extracted from the root of a plant grown chiefly in India. Very expensive. And indeed, in Matthew and Mark's Gospels, they tell us that this jar of perfume she, this woman had was worth a full year 
of a man's wages. Now, you think about that in American terms. Uh, the pay for an entire year, that is some expensive perfume. How the woman got this, we don't know, but it was clearly her most valuable possession. We don't know what this woman's sins were. They are not enumerated. We don't know how she first encountered Jesus, but this much is certain. Somewhere she had heard Jesus declared that he had come not to call the righteous folks, but sinners. Somewhere she had heard that Jesus described himself as the good shepherd who never rests until he rescues every single lost sheep. And I can't help but wonder if she was in the great crowd one day when a woman who had been caught in the very act of adultery was brought to Jesus for judgment. And the Old Testament said that the penalty should be she should be executed, stoned to death. And these proud, self-righteous Jews had drug her to Jesus. Notice they didn't bring the man with her. Ah, just a woman. And they wanted Jesus to pronounce sentence on her. And Jesus knelt down and wrote some things on the ground. We don't know what. And then he stood up and said, if there's anybody here who has no sin, step up and throw the first stone at her. And one by one, they drifted away. And finally, Jesus was left just standing there with the woman. And he said to her, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. I wonder if this woman from Bethany was witnessed that. Oh, she certainly heard about it. The woman who crashed Simon's party in Bethany had seen in Jesus' eyes and heard in his voice the love of God. And she responded with her whole heart. Her newfound joy demanded that she say, thank you. So when she heard that Jesus was coming to Bethany, to the home of Simon, she boldly entered that house and knelt at his feet. And her tears of gratitude dropped on his feet and she wiped them with her long, unbound hair. She kissed his feet. And then she broke off the top of that flask of perfume and lavished it all over his feet. Old Simon, the host, was horrified. He was thinking to himself, I can't believe that this sinful woman has wrecked my dinner party. But Jesus disagreed. Knowing Simon's thoughts, Jesus said, Simon, when I entered your house, you didn't provide water to wash my feet, but this woman has washed my feet with her tears. You didn't kiss my cheeks, but this woman has continued to kiss my feet. You didn't put any oil on me, but this woman has lavished my feet with her perfume. And then Jesus delivered a scathing indictment to his host, comparing him unfavorably with this sinful woman. Jesus said, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why her love is so great. But he that has been forgiven little, loves little. 
And then Jesus declared, she has done a beautiful thing to me. Turning to the woman, he said, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Bishop W.T. Hardy uh, used to ask a, an interesting hypothetical question about this woman of Bethany. He said, what if, what if, just imagine, if she had slipped up behind Jesus and unscrewed the top of that perfume bottle and dipped her finger down in it and put a little dab behind his ear. Well, Jesus would probably have turned and said, thank you, but nobody else would have noticed. It certainly would not have been recorded in Holy Scripture. And yet, she couldn't do that. She couldn't do it. Why? Because her heart wouldn't let her. She was so full of gratitude and love that she had to be lavish. A little dab just wouldn't do. Folks, love, real love, never rations itself out with cold, careful calculation. Never. Show me what you're extravagant about, and I will show you where your heart is. I've known people who gave lavishly to the athletic department of their favorite university, but would never dream of giving that much to Christ and his church. If you want to know what you love most, follow the money. Follow the money. Consult your checkbook and your receipts for your credit cards. Your extravagance always leaves a paper trail. The late Mother Teresa of India told about a poor beggar who was so moved by her ministry that he gave his entire day's beggings to that ministry. And Mother Teresa said that meant more to her than receiving the Nobel Prize. If you really love Jesus Christ, a little dab of gratitude won't do. Extravagant love shows up. Extravagant giving can be seen here, there. You see it in the newspapers. I remember reading about an account of a man named Ron Mercier, who is a retired teacher and coach, high school teacher and coach up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And 20 years ago, he had a girl in his class named Amy McLeod. And then a couple of years ago, he happened to encounter Amy's father and stepmother. And he asked how Amy was doing. And they told him that, that Amy was not doing well, that she was spending four hours a day, three days a week on a dialysis machine, hoping and praying that somebody would donate a kidney. And Ron listened to that. Hadn't seen her now in 20 years. But the Holy Spirit would not let him rest. Would not let him just pray for her. Oh, no. So he researched the situation and found out that her blood type and his were the same, O positive. And he made a decision to donate a kidney. And the operations were conducted. They were successful. Today, Ron and Amy are doing well. Now that, my friends, is extravagant giving. 
I want to direct your attention now to the screen because we're going to see and hear how some Mount Horeb church members, their, what their adventures in giving were back during the recent Advent season. When I initially heard about the Advent gift and being given $100, um, I kept thinking over what Pastor Jeff was saying about um, that we could give it and bless the community. And then he said we could keep it. And um, being a single mom with three little girls, um, it was very tempting to say, yeah, I could keep it. I just decided to trust that God um, would use it to teach me um, not to cling to um, that gift, but to give the gift. We mentioned it to our kids and they said, oh, well, we have some money that we could give to uh, needy families. Um, Karen and I put in um, some money, some money from her art business. Um, then my mother was staying with us for Christmas. She thought it was a great idea, so she gave some money. Then she contacted my siblings and our nephews, and next thing you know, the $100 turned into $1,600. Jeff had said something in service that we were supposed to be the hands and feet of Jesus, and that really stuck with me, that if we were gonna give someone this money, I wanted them to know that it was because we truly loved and cared about them. For us, we're out there, we're, we're the hands and feet, and it, it's our job to get other people involved and, and you know, using this to try and spread the word. I mean, it's a wonderful thing to do. I think what's kind of special about this Advent gift is that you can give it directly to somebody and really meet a need in the community that might be missed um, by other charities, other organizations. What God wanted to show me was that if I, um, if I would just let go and hold the gifts freely um, and give freely, then he had more to give um, because he's a good, good father and he knows our needs. And a lot of times he wants to give over and beyond those needs. What was great about this Advent gift is there, there was a, a willingness to help others, but this, this started this, this catalyzed it, where a lot of people were just looking for a way or an idea or an initiative to give. And what it reminded us is that, as the scriptures say, all the, the talents, the skills, the blessings, the resources you have, they're, they're not ours, they're God's. We're just stewards of them while we're here. And we're to use them to help others and glorify God. If everyone that took that blessing you know, went out and told two or three people, even if that planted a, a seed in just a handful of them, Maybe this will bring one person to Mount Horeb and change one person's life. This idea, somewhat unorthodox idea, just turned out to be really a blessing for so many families, not just mm -hmm. those that received. We were blessed to, to give and to see, open our eyes to what the needs are out there and to have mm -hmm. some, some way of helping those families and just the joy we've gotten back from doing that. So I wanna thank Mount Horeb for mm -hmm. doing this for us.
in appreciation for all that God taught us about giving during Advent. Let's give God a round of applause. <clears throat> if you've ever ridden a horse, you know this, that if you just speed him up to a trot, it's a pretty uncomfortable ride. But if you really open up and let him go, let him run, the ride is as smooth as silk. And that reminds me of giving. If you just give it a respectable level, it's sort of like that trotting of the horse, just enough to make you uncomfortable and not enough to satisfy. But if you really open up and give generously, lavishly, extravagantly, motivated by gratitude, the ride is smooth and it's soul-satisfying. In conclusion, let me share an ancient legend about a monk, a very devout man who loved Christ, and uh, because of his love for Christ, went about sharing with everybody in need. Some rich person had given this monk uh, a diamond, very precious stone, and he put it in his bag of possessions and went on his way. After a while, a traveler stopped the monk asking for assistance. The traveler was in need. So the monk opened up his bag, and the traveler spotted that diamond. Not being a shy soul, he asked for it. And surprisingly, and with no reluctance, the monk gave him the diamond. And the traveler went on his way, just thrilled with this newfound treasure. A couple of days later, the traveler came back and found the monk and said to him, I want to trade in this diamond for something even more valuable. What is it? asked the monk. He said, I want that which enabled you to give the diamond to me. He was asking for something that only God can provide. A heart so full of gratitude that it's got to give as surely as the lungs must breathe and to give lavishly and extravagantly. When your love for Christ is genuine, a little dab won't do it. Your heart drives you to give extravagantly. Why? Because we're simply trying to say thank you to the one who gave himself fully, even to a cross, for us. How can we be sure that our finances are faithful? First, by recognizing that everything belongs to God and we are his money managers. Secondly, by serving God rather than greed. And thirdly, by allowing our love for Christ to make us extravagant givers and to God be the glory. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Gracious and holy God, give us such a vision of Jesus Christ and his cross that our hearts will overflow with gratitude and praise. Our giving to you can never match your giving for us. But 
let us catch and imitate your spirit with hearts full of gratitude. May we be extravagant givers through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.